Hi, I'm Martina McBride. You know, I've known these shady ladies for a very long time, and I love to hear their stories. But you have to take them with a grain of salt. Now, these tales and opinions are not for the faint of heart, and this podcast is not suitable for children. But then, neither is the music business. (laughs) So light one up and lighten up, because you're listening to the Shady Ladies of Music City. Is this on? Are we doing it now? What are we saying again? I'm Evelyn. And I'm Susan. Some people refer to us as... The Shady Ladies of Music City. The Shady Ladies are really delighted to welcome Bonnie Gardner to our uh, podcast today. She's one of the pioneering women of the music business. She came up at a time when women were not in the room at all. She got in and was part of some of the pivotal moments in our musical memory. So we're really excited to have Bonnie join us today. Well, Bonnie's very excited to join you, too. I remember thinking you were this unbelievably successful woman that I would never in my life be able to achieve anything that you had achieved in the business. Of course, I had no idea what it was that you had achieved. But Chris told me, oh, yeah, man, she's really famous and she's done a lot of shit and all this. So, you know, I never really <laughs> knew, what, knew what you did. But, you know, the, the consistent thing was that he called me man. <laughs> oh, yeah, man, Bonnie was really <laughs> successful. <laughs> Well, I guess I, you know, they always talk about the gl- the glass ceiling, and I didn't realize there was one until afterwards because I just didn't know the rules. And I was this hippie chick from the country who worked at the Fillmore and uh, started out at Playboy. I know, that's one of the most amazing things is how did you get hooked up with Hugh Hefner of all people. Well, when I got out of college and I went to Chicago and went to an employment agency armed with my high test scores and my degree, and they said, can you type? And I could. My mother made me do it, learn how to type in high school. So I got a job. My first job was six months at the Conrad Hilton. I was the only woman in the lobby of the world's largest and friendliest hotel. And so we did that. I lasted about six months, and then I went to another employment agency and got hired by Playboy Press. Uh, Hefner was starting a book division, and um, so I went to interview Don Myris, who was the, the supposedly the new editor. Well, he wasn't. Supposedly he was. And he asked me if I could proofread and copy edit and I said well I had graded papers and I knew my grammar so he hired me and um, I did everything from read manuscripts to um, uh, all kinds of different stuff. Is that when you met Shell? I met Shell when I moved when I got hired to by Dick Rosenzweig and transferred over to the mansion. Right. So I moved to I was Dick was ex- assistant to Hefner, so every you know everything that went through to Hefner went through Dick first, and then me. So I got to see all of the cartoons that came in in their original form. I got to I counted the votes for the Playboy Jazz Poll. I 
Hefner one time said, okay, it was on, he had a, like a dictaphone and we'd get there in the mornings and there would be several tapes. And one of them said, I want a Picasso for the great room. So I had to research and find a Picasso. And I checked with his decorator to find what size and, you know, things like color and size mattered, not just that it was a Picasso. So we narrowed it down to, I don't know, three or five or something and showed the slides to Hefner. And he said, which one cost the most? And we told him, and that's the one he chose. And But the some of the most exciting things and the most fun were I gave tours of the mansion to visiting whomevers, but I also got to meet all kinds of people that came in for the interview, the the Playboy interview, which some of them were just absolutely great. I met James Baldwin. I met Michelangelo Antonioni. I met Roman Polanski. Oh, my God. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. I got to, and the editor that was doing the interview with Baldwin was late. And so I got a call from Spektorsky, who was editor-in-chief, saying, entertain him. (laughs) And I thought, oh, okay. (laughs) So I went to dinner with James Baldwin. Just the two um, of you? Yeah. He was just really, really nice and very funny. And he said, call him, he wanted me to call him James or Jimmy. And I said, I can't even get to Mr. Baldwin. You are still two words. (laughs) You're, you're I mean, he, he is Baldwin. such an icon, you know, oh. still, even maybe oh, more absolutely. so. And he was, you know, pleasant and funny and nice. And, and so it was, um, I got to do a lot of meet and inc- I met uh, Dick Cabot there. And that's how I got my job later with the Cabot show. We used to play per quacky while he was waiting to go on. At Mr. Kelly's. Did you work? Well, let's ask first. Did you get? Did you have to wear the bunny outfit or anything? Uh, no, I don't ears? think I would have. I don't <laughs> think I would have fit. And um, but uh, some of the bunnies lived there at the mansion, and I got to know some of them. And all, I got to know some of the playmates. Um, what about Barbie Benton? Well, now that's a whole other story. I. When I went to work for Playboy After Dark, uh, which was the television show, I had left Playboy, the mansion, and moved to San Francisco to work for Enrico Banducci, uh, help book music on Playboy After Dark. So I went to, uh, to L.A. and did that and booked, um, oh, I can Tina Turner, the Grateful Dead, and but and I also helped book the dancers, and Barbie oh was hired as an extra, and she kept coming in late. I did not know that she was with Hefner. I didn't keep up with his social life, and so I fired her. <laughs> it lasted about an hour and a half, <laughs> and then I got told that perhaps I should not fire her. So it was like, oh, okay, you know. But, uh, no, that's how I met Barbie. (laughs) Watching that show was really funny, Bonnie, because it was almost like an early reality show 
But all of Hefner's friends were in it. As a matter of fact, I of think course. if you look, you can see Bill Cosby. I know Shell was in it, but you can see a lot of his friends in that. Hefner was hiring, uh, you know, the victim, all of the Playboy Club crooners. And um, not saying anything about their talent, but it was... David wanted a little more up-to-date modern. This was, you know, in the late 60s and 70s. And wanted more music, uh, up-to-date music. So, and he said that... He called me at the Hungry Eye and said, I know you know Hefner, and I know you know a little bit about music, because I just listened. And so um, I went in and, hi- and got Joe Cocker mm. to do the show. I got The Grateful Dead, Ike and Tina Turner, Canned Heat, Steppenwolf. And um, so that's, that's what I did. I remember watching those shows, and that was really an important breakthrough, I think, for the music of the times. It was. It was. You know, it, it was. Well, yeah, because these people had never had that kind. Well, you know, there weren't that many venues, but they had not had that kind of television exposure. And there were some funny things like keeping Owsley from dropping acid in the the coffee pot. <laughs> And warning people, do not drink, you know. And what was funny also, when Tina rehearsed, she rehearsed at the same intensity almost as she performed. And evidently, Hefner had never seen him. So he came out to watch. And I, this is an exaggeration, but I thought he was going to bite his pipe in half when she started to do, to sing and dance. Yeah, and it was like, whoa. How did you end up with Dick Cavett? I remember that show, you know, the music on it was... I remember sitting in my apartment in New York with friends and would watch that show every night to see, you know... First of all, he had great, great conversation, but then the music was always great, too. Cavett called me because he knew me and um, said that he really wanted some more... He wanted blues and some rock and roll on the um, on the show, and there were two talent coordinators. I wasn't a talent coordinator, but and they again booked, you know, the Vic Damones and the. If I heard my way one more time, I was going to curl. <laughs> God, but, Vic Damone—that's uh, a name you don't hear much anymore. Oh, I know. I barely remembered it. It just popped in my head. Victim but, um, for Copper Tone. <laughs> <laughs> but so Cabot said he wanted blues. And the funny thing is that, and I wanted to learn more about how to get music done right back then on television because it always was tinny and itty bitty and awful. So um, I, the one of the first artists I booked and the two talent coordinators were not happy, and uh, neither was the producer, but Cabot was the boss. So he won, which meant I started booking some of the music. And I booked uh, John Lee Hooker. Unbelievable. Because Cabot said he wanted blues, and they didn't, no one else on the show knew who he was. So, um, and I. <laughs> When I told them, I said, look, he is almost blind, 
and he's also illiterate and he plays the harp and he sings. So it was like, okay, so of course they had cue cards and of course they thought it was a harp, harp. And they were trying <laughs> to figure out, oh no, I'm not kidding. I, I had, they didn't bring one in, but they were trying to figure out how to mic it. And I said, I don't, nope, okay, here we go, never mind. I booked, um, oh, the Jefferson Airplane. I booked Delaney and Bonnie when um, Eric Clapton was the guitar player. And um, I remember the two talent coordinators used to write the intros and neither one of them had a clue who Delaney and Bonnie or Eric Clapton were, so they didn't want to write it. So, and I'm not a writer. Oh, I am really not a writer. But the producers said, you booked him, you write the intro. So I had Cabot introduce them as the Ma and Pa Kettle of rock and roll. No, you didn't. <laughs> I know, they loved it. And I, I was very pleased with myself, and they were okay with it too. But I guess my biggest thing was I booked um, Jimi Hendrix, which was great fun. His uh, publicist at the time was a friend, and but I got to pick him up in a limo, and yeah. I got to sit in the back of a limo with Jimi Hendrix while he sang me Hank Williams songs. Oh, that's funny. Why did he pick Hank Williams songs? He well, he used to live here in Nashville, you know, and he was a big country music. He knew it. Cavett was very nervous about because Cavett used to say, "Look, I am white bread, Nebraska station wagons," and some of the hipper ones, even or what he called the hipper ones, were. He was nervous about talking to them, and he didn't have to be because he was brilliant, but. Um, when Hendrix walked out on stage, and back then the, the host didn't really go in and meet anybody before, so he walked out on stage and they met. And Jimmy had on, listen to me calling him Jimmy, like, you know, he wouldn't have known me two days later if he tripped over me, but. <laughs> Trip being the operative word. <laughs> and uh, he walked out in a dashiki that actually is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And Cabot looked at him and said, do you have as much trouble, I'm paraphrasing now, but do you have as much trouble with the laundry getting too much starch in your shirts? <laughs> and he, Jimmy just looked at him and burst into laughter. So then you end up with Bill Graham at the Fillmore East. That's an amazing jump. I remember going to the Fillmore East when I was living in New York in my younger days. I loved it. It was great because I worked in the office during the day and then I worked the shows Friday and Saturday night. So I got to be there for dress rehearsal with all these incredible, incredible artists. Um, Miles Davis, the Allman Brothers and um, Dylan used to come in and we'd get a, I'd get a call in the office that he was coming that night. And so have someone meeting back there and sneak him up into one of the light booths. And it was just the music that I got to hear. And Bill was just a force of nature. And I just loved that man. And I, it's how I met all kinds of really good I don't know, just incredible artists and the producers and the managers. And 
I was also in charge of backstage passes. Ha ha ha. Ha ha ha. That's the most important thing. Oh, tell me about it. And I can remember, I I got to know the uh, plaster casters because they always had backstage passes if they wanted them. And the super groupies. And I can remember all these uh, record company executives. I got a little carried away with my power making Ahmet Erdogan stand while I gave one of the super groupies a backstage pass. <laughs> but it, I said, well, you know, they want to see these ladies. They're not so crazy about all the record company executives. But How long did you stay at the Fillmore East? Until it closed or... I left a little bit before it closed. I had, um, um, a guy had died while I was trying to give him artificial respiration. He had inhaled Freon. Oh, great. Oh, my gosh. And um, it was getting a little rough. I got um, chased down 2nd Avenue by a couple of junkies. The Hells Angels stormed the place and I I was hiding under my desk with one swinging a chain over my head until security came in and got it out and I thought you know maybe I want to go away so I got a call from Joe Bergman or not a call back then no one a, a telegram that um, asking me if I wanted to come to the south of France she was going to leave the Rolling Stones and wanted to know if I um wanted to uh, interview. So I did that. They never did replace Joe, but I did get to spend a week in the south of France being tooled around, talking to the Stones. Nice. That's a great memory. The best thing about if I would have gotten that job would have been saying, I work for the Rolling Stones in the south of France. So then I came back and I got a call from Kip Cohen, who I'd worked with at the Fillmore, that I want to come and... uh, work with him. He had just been appointed vice president of A&R by Clive. And so he called me on a Monday. I went in on a Wednesday and got hired on a Thursday or something like that and, and started to work at um, for CBS, for Columbia in the A&R department. And I was there for, I guess, six months until they told me I got overtime. And I said, because I wasn't an executive, I was like a, I forget my title, not, no one was a secretary then, I guess assistant to Kip. And um, so I turned in my overtime and they made me an executive. (laughs) Oh, that's funny. Because I was doing everything that the associate producers were doing. Kip, I didn't type, Kip typed his stuff, but I did auditions, I went to see artists, I functioned just what all the guys were, but they had never had a woman be an associate producer, which was the title that they had. So Kip went in and talked to him, and I think the only reason that they agreed was because my overtime, because I'd go out at night and do all that, and when I finally turned it in, I was making more than everybody else was. Because you were working harder. Well, that's true. But well, that, you did I learned crack a ceiling right there. You were the first female in the room. Yeah, and um, but it was great fun because I hate to say, I, to a certain extent, I was naive. But I I hate to say that now, but because of the jobs that I'd had before, Playboy, um, 
Dick Cavett, Bill Graham, I didn't know that there were things that I wasn't supposed to do. And um, so if I had an issue with something I didn't understand, like I wanted to read the contracts. I read every (coughs) memo that came out or anything that went to Kip or went to any of us. And if I had a question, I walked across the hall two aisles over and walked into Walter Dean's office, who was head of business affairs. And I could, you know, I could ask Clive questions. I didn't know that I was a a lowly office worker or or associate producer. And I, but no one stopped me. No one, Walter or Clive or any of them said, oh, go see somebody else. They were all, so I didn't know about the the glass ceiling or whatever it was because I did the same work as the guys did and now I was getting paid the same. I had access to some of the most brilliant minds. I think a lot of it was my attitude of not knowing the some of this stuff I, I shouldn't have done. I think that's the case with most women that do get through. I mean, I do know that was my experience. I asked people and I volunteered for stuff. And when I ran my own companies, I used to say to my uh, staff, everybody's job is equally important. The person stuffing the envelopes and mailing them is as important as the person who made the deal. Because if the mail doesn't get out, you don't have anything, you know, to accomplish. And I, it amazes I, me, and it always amazed me with, with people that they would come in and they would just stay in their little lane and not yeah. be interested enough to explore things. How many PR people I knew that never read the newspaper? I oh. mean, how can, you know, this is what you do. Yeah, and I read the contract. I think I was the only A&R person that did read the contract. So when I came down to Nashville and I was in charge of budgets and all that other kind of stuff... I knew, and um, and I understood it. You knew what you were doing. Well, I tried to, and if I didn't, I didn't pretend I did. I think that's another secret. You ask. Don't pretend you know something that you don't, because it'll just get you in deep shit. It you does. Know, just admit it, but then find out the answer, and don't rely on uh, a whole bunch of other people. Now, is is it true that you were there when Springsteen auditioned? Ah, yes. Tell me about that. I can't believe that. Well, it was very exciting. My office was two offices down from John Hammond. And John Hammond was one of my heroes. I mean, you discover Aretha Franklin and Bob Dylan. Everybody's hero is John Hammond. Oh, yeah. You bow low from the waist when that man walked in. And he was... Just funny and brilliant and friendly. And um, he wasn't in the offices a lot, but I was there after hours one time. It must have been 6.30 or 7. And um, my intercom rang, and it was John. And he said, I've got this kid coming in for an audition. Again, I'm paraphrasing. I wish I could remember exactly what he said. But basically it was, I think, and it was because I was the only one up there. Uh, and he said, would you come down and listen? So his office was the same size as mine, except he had a piano in his. And um, so I went to John's office, and um, there was Mike Appel, John Hammond, 
Bruce Springsteen and me. And wow. he auditioned. And um, I'd like to say I remember him being brilliant and everything else. I thought he was funny. And um, I lo- I'm a singer-songwriter fan. I, 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 the song, the lyrics, I want to be able to read them without the music and have them be meaningful. So, of course, he impressed me. And he sang, I don't know, three or four songs. And the next day, Clive called me and asked if I agreed with John's um, recommendation and enthusiasm. And I mean, I would have emptied John Hammond's waste baskets if he would have asked me to. So I'd love to think I was astute enough to have come to this realization myself. I don't know. I hope I would. How did you get to Nashville? Why did you leave New York? Well, um, okay. When Clive went to the West Coast for the infamous summer in um, Bel Air, and that he, you know, the tax, all that kind of stuff, what he supposedly got fired over, he wanted someone from the A&R department to be out there too, so Kip said, uh, volunteered me. So I came to L.A. and I stayed in the um, Rock and Roll Riot House as they, uh, you know, the Hyatt, the riot, Hyatt, whatever that Hyatt was. That I stayed there for, I don't know, a month, however long it was. And I would go to Clive's place every day and work there. And um, then I came back to New York and then all of the shit hit the fan and all that kind of stuff. And um, it was, Clive was going to leave. Kip was leaving. Um, it was, Erwin um, Siegelstein was appointed as um, temporary president or something. It was all kinds of stuff. And Ron Bledsoe, they wanted to open pop rock division in Nashville. This was one of Ron's ideas. And he wanted to know if I would come down and do that. And I thought, you know, Kip is gone. Clive is leaving. I don't think I want to stay here. And I'm kind of done. So I said, okay. And they transferred me down here to Nashville to supposedly set up a rock pop division and um, which didn't really turn out to be that because of the, you ladies understand this, the profit centers. It was like, okay, it was, I was supposedly fine pop and rock and work with that, but promotion, Nashville promotion wasn't going to work it because they didn't get any of the monetary, I mean, you know, that whole stuff. So, but I did get to work with, because Dan Fogelberg, and we had uh-huh. Tracy Nelson then, and John Hyatt, and uh, Eric Anderson. So those were the artists that I worked with. But I also, because I was raised in Southern Illinois, and I listened to blues and country, I knew who Eddie Arnold, Johnny Cash, George Jones I knew who all those artists were. And so I was always, even in New York, I was the one that was the interpreter for the country <laughs> artists. 
And you you just got all involved in the country thing then when once you got into Nashville and the pop. Yeah, thing, well, I was of... always a fan. I mean, the first time I got invited to Johnny Cash's house, I thought I was going to mass. You know, it was really. Yeah, I was a huge fan because, again, the artists back then, the Merle Haggards and the George Joneses and the songs weren't all about drinking beer and driving trucks and wearing too tight jeans and backward hats. Well, they were about drinking, (laughs) but they weren't about trucks. And then you got very involved with Willie and... uh... Oh, yeah, I had left it. Well, I got involved with Willie because I knew Neil Reshin from um, when he, because he managed um, Miles. And right. Miles played the Fillmore. That's right, and you booked him. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I had, oh, I had a couple of Miles stories that, but he called me a honky bitch. <laughs> huh. I said, yes, I said, yes, sir. With <laughs> affection <me>. or? <laughs> yes, but when I was down here in Nashville, Neil called me one evening and said, basically, this is what... And I'd been a Willie fan, but um, never really knew him. But this was in, I don't know, 73, I guess. And Neil called me and said, tomorrow, the next day, um, Willie will be out of his contract with Atlantic because it says in his contract, if they no longer have an office... In Nashville, Willie is out of his contract. And they were announcing the next day that Atlantic was closing. And so he said, I'm telling you, Neil was telling me this so that he really wanted Willie on Columbia, but he didn't want to be the one who said it. You know, he didn't want to approach. So it was, I was still at the office, it was late. So I wrote a note. Marianne McCready still remembers seeing the note. I wrote a note on, I wasn't a vice president then. I wrote a note and put it on Billy Sherrill's door that said, Willie will be available tomorrow, as will Troy Seals. And frankly, Billy Sherrill was more excited about Troy Seals than he was Willie. And uh, if we want to, to sign them, you know, let me know. And Billy then called Bruce Lundvall, who said absolutely. And that's how it went. The other thing that I did, and I don't know if this was legal or not, but tough, it's over. When Blackburn fired me, the first thing I did, because I had promised Willie all of those tapes, the, the picnic tapes and all of those things that he had done, they would never come out until he approved them. So I, the day I was fired, I went, you were always fired at CBS at 10 o'clock on a Friday morning. So at 11 o'clock on that Friday morning, I went to Michael Campbell, one of our favorites, ladies, remember? Because uh-huh. he was an intern there. And I said, you, you go to the vaults and you pack up every Willie Nelson picnic tape and you send it immediately to the Perdinales. And he did. That's Willie's studio in Austin. They all went there, and CBS no longer had control of them because they wanted to put them out. And they went, they went looking for them sometime after that, and it was like, 
nope, not here, not here, not here. Nope. So did you get in trouble yeah. or did they never figure it out? Well, they finally figured it out because I told them. You went from the label, then you went into management. Did you start immediately? Well, Mark called me. Actually, I called Mark right after Mark Rothbaum, right after Rick fired me. And he said, well, come to work for me. And I said, at that point, I wanted out of everything. So I didn't go. But then I eventually joined Mark and was Rothbaum and Garner. And we managed Willie and uh, Chris and the O'Kanes and Emmy Lou and Roger Miller. And then um, we started working. Uh, the Highwaymen was put together, and I went out as their tour manager for all of the European and the Australian and the Asian and the U.S. tours, which is a whole other excitement story and everything else. And then when that was over, I started my own management, and that was with Marty Stewart, Lynn Anderson, Joy Lynn, and uh, did that until, when did, I don't remember when. Until you retired. And then there was the album that got the Grammy, which was great fun. Talk about that for a minute. Tell us what it was called and all that. Well, it's timeless, and Mary Martin and Luke Lewis called me and said, did I want to work on putting, helping put together a record of rock and roll artists doing Hank Williams songs? And, and I'll never forget, Mary said, you have the rock and roll Rolodex. Because I'd worked farm aids, and I'd worked with Willie, and I'd worked booking a lot of these artists. So I helped put together the Timeless record, which was a tribute to uh, Hank doing a lot of his songs, and it was great. And it won a Grammy. It was and, it uh, was the yeah. first of that type where people did, you know, other people from different genres sang, you know, music of other genres. And, you know, then it just a plethora of albums like that came out. Well, you've had an unbelievable career, Bonnie. I know. We didn't even touch on Farm Aid, which I know you were very involved in, and, you know. Those were, those were fun. Those were fun. I got to tell Good Morning America that you were late and Willie's not coming back off the bus. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Susan got Part- to tell John Mellencamp that he was a little shit. <laughs> well, because... No. He was. He, he was a little shit because uh, MTV was there. And, you know, MTV wanted one person to talk, and it was John Mellencamp. And, you know, he was one of the, you know, the founders of Farm Aid, and he didn't want to talk to them. And he, MTV was going to blow the whole thing off. And, I, you know, I just said yeah. to him, God, you're a little shit for doing this. You know, it's your organization. <laughs> Don't ruin the whole thing. And he did it. Good. Sometimes you just have to sit, you know... I told George Jones one time he was rude and ill-mannered. His mama taught him better because he stood up Elvis Costello for that duet album. No. Yeah. And I bet George took that to heart because you said He did. I talked to Nancy sometime afterwards, and she said, all you had to do was mention his mama taught him better, and he he did. That's funny. No, sometimes you do your best, and you try to understand their idiosyncrasies and all of the things that drive them and um, what makes them special and talented. But you also reach the point when you have to say, eh, eh, 
Well, ladies, we, we have had, all of us, you two aren't exactly um, slouches in the fields of careers. I mean, you've got a lot of firsts there, too. Well, thank and, you. Uh, but, you, know, you really had an amazing career. Um, yeah. I'm glad we all got to uh, enjoy, you know, so many years together of uh, yeah. working on these different projects. I think that it we was, had more fun. I mean, yeah, you know. Yeah, I started to say it was fun then. I can remember doing the George Jones thing with you all. The 50th. Oh, the 50th. 50 years of anniversary. Yeah. That was, uh, you paid me with the t-shirt, but that's. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we didn't even get that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We paid for the (laughs) t-shirts. Well, thank you. Once again, I still have it. Well, thank you so much, Bonnie, for spending so much time with us. Um, oh, that's that's quite all right. Career. It was fun. It, it's funny because I was thinking, oh, my God, I hope I remember half of this stuff. You didn't forget a well, lick. Well, probably a lot. And some of the names may have been changed to protect not so innocent. Thanks for listening. You be sure to subscribe and we'll be sure to catch you off guard. So light one up. And lighten up. Share and tell your friends. Then rate, review, and subscribe. Don't be quiet about this. We need you to tell everyone. Because why is someone going to listen to this? No one has any idea who that we are. So it's up to you to get us known. It has to be a viral thing. It has to be a uh, you know word of mouth thing. Because we're putting our faith in your hands. We are. For more information on the podcast, please visit www.shadyladiesofmusiccity.com. Shady Ladies of Music City is recorded and produced in Nashville, Tennessee, and is presented by Monument Records. Executive producers are Jason Owen, Shane McAnally, and Katie McCartney. Our producer is Joel Beaver. Our theme song is written and performed by Robert Schaefer's He is also our engineer and editor.